Well, hi everybody, it's Toby Miller here. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. And I'm in the beautiful North London home of Naomi Falcon. <laughs> and she's just translated her last name for me. She's also explained to me that in the real version, it is actually available in many different pronunciations. But I'm the best I could come up with, and she's more or less said that's okay, is Naomi Sakr. Sakr, yeah. Sakr, yeah. which is S-A-K-R, a very yeah. well-known academic for her work on the Arab world, but also very well known as a journalist. And Naomi, it's wonderful to be in your home and to see you after a long time. Well, thank you very much, Toby. Thank you for coming. So, we just had a fascinating conversation about this pronunciation of your last name. And I'd love if you could explain some of the differences you were just going through in different parts of the Arab world as to how that would be said. Okay, well, um, there's two types, well, there's multiple types of Arabic, but there's written Mm. Arabic and there's spoken Arabic. And um, so uh, the thing about the way you write the name in Arabic is that none of the letters are really equivalent in English. So it Mm -hmm. is almost impossible for an English person to envisage how it should sound. Um, But the interesting thing is that across the Arab world, you've got different pronunciations and sort of different levels of formality and informality in Mm -hmm. how you might pronounce it. So in Egypt, the qaf sound has got a glottal stop. You don't hear the qaf. In the Gulf, the calf gets turned into a g, and the vowels are slightly longer, so sa'a, sa'ar, sagar, various yeah. um, variations of the, I say yang, when I'm, the minute I start speaking Arabic, there's, you'll find this with quite a lot of people who um, know some Arabic. <clears throat> you know when we say am and are in English, the equivalent in Arabic is yang, that name citadia in French, you know. So it's like a very useful sort of thing that gives you time to think. And I find I'm saying it when I'm speaking to people who have no clue what this yang means. Well, it, it's in, in Spanish, they have a couple of things like that. One is osea, which is the same set idea. The other one is im. Oh, I didn't know. Which Argentines do, which is oh. a lot like um. Oh. So im is, again, oh, this aid memoir. Yeah. When you're afraid, at some level, of silence. Yeah. But you don't really know what you want yeah. to say. So up comes Eam. Eam. Oh, right. I should know that. It's a good one. Okay, so, you know, Eam is a meme. Now, Naomi, the way I like to begin most of these things, other than how on earth do I pronounce someone's name, (laughs) in a way that doesn't give complete offence and give away the game that I'm an ignoramus, is to ask people what they're up to at the moment, what they're doing. So what's happening for you right now? Okay, well, a few things, as usual. <laughs> um, I, You know, you, you try to sort of compartmentalise a bit, just mm. to keep on control of things. The, <laughs> most, the, biggest, the biggest commitment um, is the project that I'm principal investigator for mm-hmm. um, about children's TV in the Arab world. Um, and we say TV, but not linear TV, like screen content, okay? And it's a three-year project that we got money from the AHRC, which is the Arts and Humanities Research Council. Here in Britain. In the UK. And it was, a, it was quite a large sum of money because... But most of the money goes towards um, certain members of a five-member team. So we've got five, five... The project is conceived as being production, distribution, consumption, appropriation. Sort of the whole gamut... The full um, catastrophe, as Sorbel would say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, cat- catastrophe, um, yes and no in this context. Um, so, <clears throat> um, so we have two, I mean, so it came together because we have expertise in, so I'm part of CAMRI, which is the Communication and Media Research Institute at, at Westminster. the University of Westminster yes. here in London, yeah. Um, 
And um, we have expertise there, in the, in, well, led by Jeanette Steemers, another professor, uh, in children's TV. And Who's been on the podcast. Actually, oh, has she been? Talking about that. Oh. She was wonderful, yes. She was okay. terrific, isn't she? <clears throat> Absolutely. And her work on preschool TV and everything. Now, I'm a political economy sort of person. I mean, that's how I see the world. I find it hard to see the world in any other light. But, um, so we... Jeanette and I together are sort of doing the production and distribution side in the sense that because everybody thinks there's money in the Gulf and because independent um, producers in UK and Europe have been starved of new commissions because of the downturn here and because of massive changes in the... So get, if you need to get the phone, please do it. It's probably cold calling. <clears throat> it's just in case it's... A of course, please. These are the realities of the podcast. When waiters appear, when telephones ring, one understands. It's a stormy August day here in North London as we talk about the full catastrophe of the production, reception, distribution and so on of children's television. So, back live. Yeah, sorry. That no, not at all. That's fine. It's just that. Um, it's nice to hear a, tele a proper telephone ring. Yes. Because, it's just because I have four children and um, one of them, like one of them is a very, well, he's, he's a new dad for the second time. So, wow. I just have to, like, it's, if there's calls, I just have to be. Of course. <laughs> Don't worry. Okay. Um, so, 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 because there is an involvement of UK and um, other independent producers from outside the Arab world yeah. doing work with um, producers inside, so Jeanette's um, got sort of good contacts and information and she's following that side. Um, I'm doing the sort of straight you know, Arab production, animation mm. industry, mm. finance, etc. Um, and then... Uh, we have a two-member team looking at the audiences and doing ethnographic work with kids. Um, and so we chose three countries, UK, so our community here in London. And um, originally we were going to do Lebanon and Morocco. Uh, Lebanon is not really feasible at the moment because the security situation is so terrible because of the spillover from Syria. So we're looking, we're talking to colleagues in Kuwait about possibly doing it there. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and the work, the ethnographic work in Morocco has already started and will continue after the end of Ramadan, which is next after, um, like sort of from the middle of next week onwards. And um, so that's Tariq Sabri, another Westminster colleague who's a cultural studies person, who's well known in that field, and, um, and a postdoc, a lovely uh, postdoc, Nasreen Mansour, who's working with him on that front. And the other thing that we got from the grant was a, a PhD studentship. Oh, nice. Somebody doing, um, and their topic is definitions of childhood in the Arab world and the implications for screen-based media. So uh, <clears throat> definitions of childhood, you know, it's quite a big controversial issue in sort of Western history. And it's amazing what you bring up when you start sort of comparing. And, and so it's very, very rich. Um, I'm... Um, and we're kind of midway through, I guess, because we started like the beginning of um, early, early 2013 and we finished in January 2016. So we're going great guns at the moment. Wonderful. 
And um, so uh, there's lots of writing and, and analysing and um, for that. So that's one, <clears throat> well, I would say one strand, but actually it's multiple strands. Mm -hmm. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, I've done, I personally have done lots of field work. I've been in Dubai, I've been in Doha, I've been in Doha, in Qatar, I've been in Abu Dhabi, where they're making a new version, a new Gulf version of Sesame Street. And I sort of did a, tried to do a production study, but... Well, it's close to what you might call a production study, but um, but like bearing in mind sort of issues of, of access and, mm -hmm. and the things that arise. And, um, but it's, it also probably suits my kind of more um, all-round... Well, I mean, production study in the proper sense is, is, a, is a kind of multifaceted thing, and that's what I've tried to do with Sesame Street. So in a way, I mean, my own elements of that project are... Um, multiple and I'm trying to sort of work for example in September we're going Jeanette and I are going to the World Summit on um, Media for Children which happens only every three years it's in Malaysia in Kuala Lumpur we've been asked to run a, a, a pre-summit workshop but um, I've been lucky to meet through other stuff I've done I've been lucky to meet somebody who from South Africa who was very involved in one of those summits got a very, very interesting perspective on mm. the whole project from somebody in South Africa. Um, <clears throat> there's tons I want to... So, I mean, that's a whole... That strand yeah. is a whole... Um, and it's, that's got a historic... Well, a historical element. They only started in 1995, but, you know, it's, um, it's a kind of long-term narrative where you'd want to look at um, developments and things. So... So that's multiple, but um, in the, so I, what I also do is I run the Arab Media Centre in Camry. So Camry is, um, we have like research subgroups and some of them are thematic, industry and media industries, media history, media audiences and social media. And some of them are geographic. Mm -hmm. So we've got China, India, and so, on. so Arab Media Centre has actually been going since 2006 and next year will be our 10th annual conference and we're going to do it on Arab media history and all the elements that, so it's not just, you know, what constitutes history but like approaches to history, teaching of history, archiving. Archiving is a huge issue in the Arab world because <coughs> where you have authoritarian regimes is like part of the project of the incumbents is to delegitimize mm. the previous and how do you do that is by like rewriting history destroying history etc so like archives is a is a big issue in um, in that world. so that will be one of the things hopefully that we will and plus oral histories of people who were involved in the early days of tv and such like i mean there's a huge um huge potential there and um, so that's what we're going to do and so I'm currently sort of we're devising like we're thinking through some of the issues around organizing that conference mm. wow. um, and I, I also have <coughs> um, well I get asked to speak at quite a lot of things and mm. when you're asked to speak mm. I don't like to just recycle I like to <laughs> say new stuff usually do research for that so it's a bit ad hoc but I mean it's usually like taps into what I'm working on already mm. but um, yeah so I just been asked to speak at something um, a conference in Tunisia 
um, where they're going to be looking at sort of media and leadership and accountability and things like that. Wonderful. Wow, that's such a full world. First of all, when you and Jeanette and your other colleagues finish the project and you're all ready to publish, or maybe you've already published, I hope you'll come back into the pod and promote oh, yeah. those yeah. publications, yeah. you know, the whole group of you. Be really we have, fun. actually. Jeanette and I just wrote one chapter, which has been more or less accepted, so... Yeah. <laughs> Terrific. And I'd love to know, without asking you to spill the beans on the findings, because you're still working that yeah. out, what some of the issues are in oh. general, the things that impelled you to undertake this research in terms of screen-based media for Arab children. Yeah. Well, um, a big part of the, the application dealt with issues of kind of textual analysis and understanding audience responses. Um, which, are, which are questions that I have, I realise how important they are, but they're ones that I'm so sure that I personally can't answer, that I, my research doesn't go in that direction. But they are about, <clears throat> so how is, like, how are, how is the other? It's a question mm. of spatial, what, what my colleague Tariq would talk about is in terms of spatiality and temporality. How is how are here and there mm. us and them mm. constructed in the in the content that is produced locally for children in Arabic for children that are receiving this stuff in Arabic? So it's local so, content you're focusing on, not imports. Oh well, now you see that's a, it's a big issue because when you come to look at um, the actual sort of broadcast scene, it's massively dominated by imports, massively. For reasons that are actually, well, they are sort of um, historically specific, like to do with, it's nothing to do with, they're not essential to the Arab world, they are essential to a certain set of circumstances where there is no, there's a lack of <clears throat> public subsidy, public in the sense of like democratically mandated subsidy for um Children, for local children's content. Mm, mm -hmm. So anybody who is, um, if you want to be commercially successful, the way you do it is you import Hollywood content and dub it, and that's what the vast majority of children's content providers are doing. And so you get SpongeBob SquarePants, etc., in Arabic. And, um, and some channels do like a modicum of, of local stuff. But I mean, even NBC3, which does... <clears throat> one of the main children's providers. Um, it's a private channel, it's owned by a Saudi, close to the, to the ruling family. Um, they, um, like one of their flagship shows, which was like locally produced, mm -hmm. was not like, locally produced, yes, in Arabic, for Arab children, but not in Arab countries. So they did it in America or South, or South Africa, I think. They went all around Malaysia. They went all over the place, but they didn't do it in Arab countries. So, you know, local is, um, so local production, there's all sorts of de like deterrence obstacles. And there are the creativity that exists. I mean, it's there, just like everywhere else. But you've got to piece it all together. Mm. You've got to create a pipeline. <clears throat> and investors invest in like animation equipment and studios etc but there is not the kind of nurturing of 
or recognition or validation of things like storytelling and just there's a <clears throat> there's a kind of heavy emphasis on didacticism mm -hmm. and not so much on just like stories for stories. So. Right, right, right. Well, we get and that with children's TV in many instances, don't yeah, we? There's yeah. often a sense of entertainment being too close to commercialism and yeah. this pedagogic imperative yeah. that impels a lot of what's done and often is the reason why governments make special provision for that matter for children's television. Don't yes, they? but it's, that's a bit, that's a bit, um, it tends to, well, that tends to be modified a bit, or mitigated is the word I mm. want, mm. Um, by the kind of public service ethic, whereby, <clears throat> like, it, it's a question of what works, right? Mm. And being too, um, being too, um, like, dogmatic about things mm. doesn't work, right? <laughs> so public service broadcasters have discovered that they've got to compete, and they've got to, it's, you know, they want children to watch, and so... So um, the ones that are, uh, you know, are independently regulated, I think, have done interesting things with children's, TV, with children's TV. Jeanette would know more about that than me because she goes to the Prisoners, which is every two years, which is German funding. And I think in, in, in the German public service system, again, there's a lot of research. I mean, they, there is publicly funded research about, you know, children's um, TV. And um, and probably less of this kind of um, you know teachery sort of mm. approach, but um, <clears throat> but I'm just reporting here what I hear from um, gifted animators in the region, who who are very conscious that there's lots of good stories to be told from the region, you know by mm. by the region, which would be interesting to the rest of the world as well. You know, and so it's not just a question of, of, of um, you know, making something that is like a good Palestinian story or a good, um, you know, Emirati story and making it for those children. If it's interesting to children, it's going to be interesting to children, as somebody said, in Chicago, Amsterdam or wherever. And this is the thing that is, um, when I gave a lecture in, um, in Morocco, um, just like last month, month yeah, look. yeah, June. I can't remember. Anyway, um, <clears throat> uh, it's it, the 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 investment in the Arab world into children's production is so focused on preserving, understandably, in the face of all this Hollywood Im imports, preserving Arabic language, Arab culture, sort of Islamic resonance. It's so focused on that that it's kind of lost this dimension of like, but it should, if it's interesting mm. to children everywhere, isn't that also good and makes it more so? So, those are one of the, these are kind of some of the contradictions. Yeah. And, no, yeah. Very interesting, very interesting. I wanted to pick up on something you said almost at the beginning of your discussion of this, and you've returned to it once or twice since, namely that political economy is really your bag. Yeah. And you smiled when you said that but in a slightly self-deprecatory way, almost. Yeah. I wondered if you could explain what no, because political economy is to you well, and oh, yeah. so on. Well, it's kind of following <laughs> the money, isn't it? I, mean, <laughs> <laughs> I think um, so. <laughs> um, it's Susan Strange is, uh, is the person I usually quote. Who pays who benefits? You know, And that's what interests me about anything, about any situation. Because, I mean, um, actually, media... 
or media economics. There's no such thing as pure economics. Economics is political economy because economics is all about choice, right? It's about, it's about scarcity. And if you've got resources that are not infinite, then you have to make choices about how to use them. And choice is a political thing because who's got the power to make the choices? So you cannot have <clears throat> economics without political economy. I mean, it's a, it's a fiction to think, you know, econometrics and all this stuff. I mean, um, uh, anyway, I won't, but, so Susan Strange says, who, who pays, who benefits? And that's, and that's how I, I, that's what I think are the interesting questions and what kind of bargains are being made. Mm. And it's up to us to like untangle them and see, to find them out, you know, because they're not, mm. they're not mm. readily visible. Um, oh yeah, and the thing I was going to say is that I didn't see myself as an economist. Well, I'm not an economist, but economics was not like number one. When I, when I, my first degree is in English, uh-huh. and it was called English Language and Literature. Okay, and um, I went from there. I went from there actually. To, I went to Egypt and taught in Egypt, taught English. That was called it. Um, to young kids, they were kids of. Um, <clears throat> So we're talking about this a long time ago, early 70s. And um, so it's still kind of, you know, just Nasser had only recently died. So it's before the 73 war? Yes, before, yeah, we came back to yeah. the UK before the before right. the October war, but after right. the, the, the 67 war. Yeah. Um, and there was a kind of class of kids of like Nouveau-Rish, you know, the army officer class that mm. had kind of come to the fore. NASA people. Yes. Mm. And um, this is NASA who was the sort of foundational figure mythically of Egypt as a quasi-secular state. Who... Well, it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't a non-secular before. It was, it was a, it was a monarchy before. And then the monarchy was, um, I mean, there was no kind of, um, like religious element to the right. monarchy. I it's mean, not as like a, Morocco as a, but or, as a republic. Yeah. Yes, as a, as a, as a, as a yes, quasi-secular yes. republic. Yes. Ma- yes. Ma- massive figure yes. in, in a sense, the non-aligned movement. And, uh, Absolutely. And, yes, I mean, and, um, and in sort of furthering the cause of, you know, of, of workers and, uh, and the underprivileged and um, workers and farmers, you know, pe- peasant farmers and... Uh, um, and part of that sort of post um, post war independence movement. Mm. Of, uh, um, but I mean, they they kind of didn't have any sort of blueprint. They were making it up as they mm-hmm. went along. Anyway, that officer class I was teaching mm. their kids, yeah. and that was not a very inspiring um, experience. Plus, I'm not. I was. I'm not a good teacher for kids of that age. I'm sure. <laughs> um, certainly not at the age I was then. So I was there for a year, and then that's when I decided I want to do middle um, um, an area studies degree. So I came back to Sars with, uh, with my husband. And, this uh, is the School of Oriental and African, African studies, studies. Yes, and they had the this um, uh, area studies degree of the of near. They called it the Near and Middle East. So near to what? I mean, you know, yes. <laughs> these are wonderful terms, aren't they? <laughs> And, and and sorry, your husband came back with you. Yes, and yes. he was here yeah, because well, he wasn't yeah. coming back because he's Egyptian. So he was leaving Egypt, coming mm-hmm. to UK to do. Um, ling- well, he'd been doing a linguistics degree at American University of Cairo, Cairo. Mm-hmm. and he was trying to juggle that with working in Alexandria. So, like doing Alex Cairo 
twice a week is not mm. easy. So he came and like finished it off, like we uh, came to Birkbeck and did he finished his master's degree here in, in all those jobs. Yeah. Mm. Really? Wow. So it was area studies what got you interested in political economy? In no, uh, no, 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 no. My okay. So my um, the area studies. I think I probably did history, anthropology, and something politics. Um, and it was a theory-free zone. We're talking like <laughs> 90, 73, 73, 74. Yeah, I graduated in 74. In those days, I mean, all the stuff we have to do now in universities, feedback, you know, all that stuff. Oh my God, no way. And theory, what is theory? When I came to do my media studies master's 20 years later, and I saw you know, media, books called Media Theory. I wondered, what could that possibly mean? <laughs> okay? So that's how green I was, right? So I, start, I got this Master's, Area Studies. What did I get out of it? I'm not sure. I think SOAS would do a whole lot better job now than they did then. Um, so what, well, let me trace what happens to you after that then. So yeah, so how did I get into political economy? Well, okay. I tell you, no, it's easy. It's okay. easy, easy. Right. Because the first job I got after getting my area studies degree yeah. was for an outfit that was called the Middle East Economic Digest. Need. Have you heard of it? No. All right. There I you just, go. I, because I used to be a bureaucrat, All right. my so mind acronyms. turns towards nutty acronyms. <laughs> and one of the tasks we used to give ourselves was to invent acronyms that sounded weird and then justify them by finding right. things that they didn't stand for. <laughs> anyway, Middle East Economic Digest hired you with your English degree and your area yes. studies degree. And in it's those stands days, to reason, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, and, <laughs> but in those days, I could have had one of three jobs in that one. They had conferences, I could have worked for that. They had yeah. something called Arab Report and Record, I could have worked for that. Now, you know, you're lucky if you get... I mean, it's just so unfair. If you compare my generation with now... Yeah, yeah. it's tougher. Yeah. So what were you doing at the Digest? <laughs> you wouldn't ask that if you knew the answer. I started off, because I was a novice, mm. I started off, and I knew French... There, you know tenders you put out you put mm -hmm. public public bodies put big contracts out to tender and this is like this is the 70s everything is hard copy clip bits of paper you put them in wire baskets of different colors according to you know so um so pub, these public bodies would be putting out to tender these contracts mm -hmm. and part of Middle East economic digest was to translate these and gather them all into one place and so that's what I did for the first few weeks until wow. the editor discovered he I did a he tried me on a piece. And when I wrote it, he said, Did you write this? I said, yes. And then I just <laughs> So you became a journalist? Yes. Yes. How interesting. Can you remember what the piece was about? Um, I think it was about runways. About the length of runways. The theme we never leave behind. <laughs> Um, it was a, no, it was something like because it was all about construction. Okay, so we're talking seventy-four oil price boom. All the OPEC countries and our OPEC countries. Organization of Petroleum Exporting that's, Countries. That's right, and the and the OAPEC is the Organization of Arab Petroleum Exporting Countries. So they were facing like revenues that they weren't used to, 
and it was all a question of like d development, construction, construction. So this was something to do with building um, airport, something to do with length of runways. And I actually bothered. I mean, we used to mostly write from clippings, but I bothered to phone up a guy and try to understand why did you need a particular length of runway. <laughs> Some dare call it journalism. <laughs> Some day called it research. No, yes, I mean, but it's just the lowly people. I mean, we were only a very small team working, working right. in one room in Chancery Lane with a gas fire. But the point is, you took on a job as a dog's body, as the yeah. old saying yeah. used to go, and then you showed some initiative. And those things still work often in organisations if they're not too large. Yes. But yes, getting it's true. into them in the first place but is tough. I know, it's weird though, because when you, because you know yourself, right? But then it makes you think, well, how do other people see you? So other people there, it was slightly macho, perhaps. Was it? Yeah. I mean, we, that's the term one uses in hindsight, but at the time you don't think of it like that. I mean, actually, I remember being told by the, by the when I was interviewed for the job, oh, we don't usually hire married women. <laughs> of course not. Because they have children. They've got other things on their minds. Yes, yeah, so, but they have. They tend to have children, and that's really inconvenient when you're a small business. <laughs> but this is the seventies, right? We're talking. This is early. This is a long People time ago. People probably still it's think it. years ago. They probably still think it. They may not say it. Yes. Yeah. That's the worry, isn't it? They're, they're not allowed to say it, but they might act on it. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. I mean, those those attitudes. I mean, the. So now we have the language. At the time, you wouldn't yeah. necessarily have had the vocabulary. Wouldn't have come as sure. easily. To articulate. So now, with hindsight, you're making me think about this. Mm, the fact mm. that I was a, I was like newly graduated female mm. in an environment of kind of pretty established, like you know, self, um, like comfortable with themselves, men who've been doing this, even though it was like you know, it's not a big operation, <laughs> not big at all. And I, I knew that I'm perfectly confident, competent, but clearly they just they, they hadn't necessarily seen that. They don't see it until it's on paper. At least they saw it then, some wouldn't. Yeah. So there you are. How long are you at the Digest for? Uh, a couple of years, and then I um, went to another... Yeah, I became um, economics... Business, I think it's called business editor of, um, of a monthly magazine that was set up by a Tunisian publisher. He had a, like a publishing whole kind of publishing house in London. Because London is the is the kind of centre of Arab publishing in the 70s and 80s. And um, so this Tunisian had a number of, um, of publications. One of them was a monthly called The Middle East, which I think still goes, uh, still exists. Um, and I was there for, again, for a couple of years as, as a business ed editor, which was good because, I mean, I had sort of autonomy in commissioning and... Um, and in like in deciding what the priorities and the leads and that, that kind um, of were thing. these publications in English or yeah. Arabic or yeah. French? Yeah. Who was the audience? I suppose it's, it's only because of the oil boom that the assumption was that you know if you want to make some money in in the countries that are raking in the oil revenues, uh, you need to know about them. So that the Middle East was like had political, cultural, economic side. Yeah, fascinating. And after that. Four oh, years went, of being oh a business God, I editor. went to something that was called Arabia, the Islamic World Review, set up by a Saudi. And I was wooed um, away from the Middle East. I mean, I was ready for a change. And it was, 
it was mostly Westerners, like the, the team was like was Westerners, and they had some people who were like top in their field. You know, was Zia Sardar, you might mm -hmm. have heard of him, he's quite prominent in as you know, he writes for um, mainstream Western um, publications, trying to like make people like because he's Pakistani and he understands, like, he writes about Muslim world, but. From a, from an um, anyway, he he was he was part of that team and um, like <clears throat> so I was there, but it was not it was quite short lived because then it got taken over by um, the editorially by people whose um, I mean I can't to this day say because I didn't really find out particularly who but it was like a Muslim Brotherhood sort of a, um, a takeover and then the rest of them went. So became ideologically Uns not, not pluralist. Unsavory. Yes. Well, unsavory in the sense that, um, you know, journalism is journalism. You know, you don't, um, okay, if you're writing, I mean, you know, ideology, ideology determines what subjects get selected. Okay? Mm -hmm. Even if you don't get interfered with in what you actually report, it comes from, just you look at the contents list and look at Right. And the Muslim <clears throat> Brotherhood at that time was a pre a proscribed organization in no, 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 some no, places. No, uh, not not no, in Britain. Not, well, in okay, we're talking about eighty talking about eighty two Well it was proscribed yeah, in I Egypt left, by then, wasn't it? Oh yeah, I left well Sadat, you see this is the the weird thing, um, and this is how the kind of a more extreme, um, like politicizations of religion, mm. have been fostered across the region. Is because insecure despots have played off, have nurtured in a way the the sort of extremist wing of of trying of of like politicized. Islamists. So, I mean, I <clears throat> the the issue is not with Islam. The issue is with the <coughs> with a kind of extreme, like political um, agenda that is is not interested in dialogue. And so, uh, insecure rulers have, and especially Sadat. Is Anwar Sadat who yes, was NASA's successor yes, from seventy onwards. Um, the, the easiest way to sort of you know keep keep himself in balance is yeah. to play the secular Nasserite stroke left. I mean it's a it's a mishmash. I mean you know you can't use any single label for that mm, mm, against mm. the the people who say Islam is the solution, right, which is not a sort of a dialogue friendly approach or a pluralistic approach, and and so it. You know, it didn't come out of nowhere. This, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, and plus, there was a lot of feeling in the region after '67 that somehow, you know, people had lost their way. In, um, you know, that the that the big defeat in Egypt was somehow due to the fact that people had lost their way. Um, you know, in terms of religion, and then when the the Iranian Revolution came in '79, um, you know, <clears throat> there was a, it sort of did affect. Um, 
thinking in the Arab countries as well. Mm. Um, so, so I, what was the question that I was answering about? Um, yeah, I mean, they, it was proscribed. In Kuwait, also, the same thing. The mm. Islamist wing in Kuwait, very inconvenient now to the rulers in some respects, but it was the kind of ruling family, elements of the ruling family, mm. that that nurtured and boosted. So, you know, you have to just go back and, and disentangle the, you know, how did that come about? And in fact, <clears throat> well, I don't know much too much about this, but, um, <clears throat> I mean, Hamas, you know, came into being around the time of the first intifada, or before. And it, like it, you know, if you suppress all outlets for political activity except the mosque, yeah, what happens then? Well, if you look at Pata Chatterjee's work about the British rule in India, it's the same deal. If you decide that you're going to proscribe political activity, but you don't think you can really control the spiritual realm, the religious sphere, and that's where politics will migrate to. Yeah. And it's a yeah. long-lived lesson. In any event, so the Muslim Brotherhood, or a fraction thereof, takes over the magazine where you're working, and you skedaddle off into the arms of? Uh, I took a career... Well, no, it wasn't a career break. I really had a career break. <clears throat> My twins were born at that time. Wow. And it's a you skedaddle, skedaddle off into the arms of the twins. Yeah, uh, because it's too expensive. My first child went to nursery. But you know, who can afford to send twins to nursery? Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, so, um, <clears throat> so I wasn't a full-time mum. I mean, I had um, somebody from my son's nursery came and worked here with the twins during the day, but um, so that I could do, so I could carry on working. Um, but I freelanced. Yeah. Right. For various, I did. I mean, there was something called. At, oh, believe it or not, there was. Um, what's that? What's his name? Um, He's a deputy um, in, in the United Nations. Oh God, I've forgotten his name. The, 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 the <coughs> it doesn't work. I can't remember the man's name. Anyway, he was running something called it, the Development Report mm -hmm. in the, within the Economist stable. I, to, I wrote some stuff for that. I wrote for Global South. Wrote for mm -hmm. no, it was called South Magazine. Oh yes, I remember that. Like various and 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 was it then that I started doing? Um, quarterlies for the Economist Intelligence Unit because that was a wonderful cottage industry. The Economist Intelligence Unit quarterly reports on countries are farmed out to freelancers and um, it's quite an intensive and absorbing job mm. and I did the one for the United Arab Emirates for quite a long time. Wow. The Economist Intelligence Unit is a spin-off from the magazine that calls itself a newspaper, I, The Economist, isn't it? It's relatively independent. It does consulting it, work. And so yes, on. And it's also independent um, in terms of <laughs> it's uh, because The Economist is quite opinionated. Yeah. But the EIU, if it's opinionated, it sometimes has different opinions. The Economist is an interesting beast, I think, because editorially it's very neoliberal, but it's pro-democratic, pro-environment and anti-fascist and anti-dictator. 
but many of its correspondents are far to the left of the editorial yeah. line. Yeah. You could say something similar about the Wall Street Journal, the difference yeah. being the Wall Street Journal's editorial pages are far, far, far to the right of the economists. They're anti-democratic, they're anti-environment, they're monstrous and mad. But some people who write for the Wall Street Journal actually have brains and do research. You know, they actually find shit out, as the saying goes, <laughs> unlike the editors. The Economist, the good thing about it is that even the people who write the quasi-named columns and who do the editorials are interested in the truth. Yeah. They yeah. at least are passionately yes, concerned yes. with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they take risks, I mean, as, as with Berlusconi and such. Yeah. Like, and yeah. No, they're really, they're one of the few newspapers slash magazines that have been prepared to take Berlusconi on, given his power and his use of judiciary. Mm. In any event, so you were working for the EIU, relatively autonomous. Did you do things for The Economist as well? Um, not the actual... Oh, well, no, no, not the, not the newspaper stroke magazine, no. Mm. I mean, we had very limited... Um, Barbara Smith was their Middle East person, and I used to meet her occasionally, but not in venues that had nothing to do with The Economist. Right, right. Um, <clears throat> and um, Max Rodenbeck in Cairo, mm -hmm. I met him, but again, through nothing whatever to, to do, do with, with that. Yeah. So did you, so at this time you were part of what we now call a precariat? In yeah, for three years. Well, then I, I was hired by them, the AIU, <clears throat> as Middle East editor. After three, after like three years in the precariat, but it, I mean, it, it was um, like <laughs> precariat. Yeah, that's a good term. I mean, I it, um, it didn't feel precarious. Well, we didn't have that language in those days, and of mm. course, you, you, in a sense, were taking a, a break. But in any event, you're moving. You move into full time work then. then yeah, in, right? in in eight, in eighty five. Yeah, when the twins were three, wow. and they started at um, so three. You can start school. Well, Push them off the blank. Oh, come on. No, it's good. <laughs> um, no, it's, you're getting the wrong end of the stick. See, what's <laughs> in my head? I'm not explaining it again. <laughs> no, I mean, I, um, little children, I mm. little children like being around other children. They sure do. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I think that's entirely appropriate. So, um, by now, you've been a journalist almost accidentally for a decade, haven't you? Yeah, from 74 to 85. Oh, goodness, yeah. yes. And then, so when I went to The Economist, I don't call that journalism. It was country, it's, you're, you're a country analyst. Then. Right, right, yeah. right, right. Because you, it's all about forecasting. Yeah. Will there be stability? Will there not? What will happen with commodity prices? What exactly. Will happen with the and military the, the, I mean, the politics. thing that I do respect about the EIU is this kind of centralised forecast. There is consistency. So you have a centralised forecast of what happens to the world economy. Mm -hmm. And insofar as that, well, obviously their oil price forecast is an iterative, you know, kind of dynamic process. Yeah. Knowing what's going to happen in Saudi, it doesn't matter now because of shale, but in those days, <laughs> um, you know, what, what's going to happen in Saudi, what's going to happen in Iran, what's sure. going to happen in Iraq, feeds into the global oil price, feeds back into... Yeah, it was, it was a sophisticated operation, but, um, and of course, you know, um, it's only probabilities, you know, you can only yeah. forecast the probabilities. And that, but that's what investment is in part based on. Yeah. So, when, when are you starting to think that there might be something about academia that could be 
you'd like or oh. that would be more valuable than, say, your SOAS experience. Because you're asking all the right questions. That probably means they're the wrong ones. No! Well, <laughs> no, because I, don't, I never get a chance to talk about this. Right. Unless it comes up in, like, dinner conversations and I think, oh, I'm getting so boring. I better stop talking about <laughs> myself. People sometimes say, oh, is that the time? <laughs> There's a storm coming. <laughs> um, no, no, it is. It is. I mean, it is... Um, um, the 1990, um, okay, the, so this Iran-Iraq war goes on from 1980 to 1988, and then 1990, uh, Iraq invades Kuwait in August, and I'm at the EIU, and, and the Arab world splits completely over whose side are they on. And I think, listen, I have got no patience with this. You know, I, none of it makes any sense. I mean, of course it does. You can analyze it and trace it back and explain. And we did, we did reports and we had a country report on Kuwait and we had another one on uh, Iraq, etc. But I just thought, I know I want to do this again. I just, I don't want to do this. And, um, and I just thought, Publishing at that time because I'd been working on special reports. I saw the like the issues that affect publishing And I thought well, I've got that experience, you know, I'd like to share it with other people which I can do through teaching in uni but um, But I mean I wasn't equipped. I mean I didn't have so it was a question of like, okay Step back and do a media studies degree to understand what have I been doing? You know, and how does this work so that I can maybe teach it to people? That's so, wonderful. So I, I, I signed up for an evening, I mean, it was evening classes at, um, it was an evening MA at the wonderful Institute of Education. Uh, it was an offshoot of their um, kind of media education, and it's all post-grad. And, um, and I did it, it was two years, so the first year was like talk courses and the second year was dissertation. Mm. And, um, yeah. Wow. So that's how I got into media studies, but... How did I then get from media studies back into the Middle East? <laughs> because while I was finishing the first year and deciding what to do for my dissertation, the Oslo Accords were signed. And people in Palestine, some very enlightened people in Palestine were saying, please don't let us go down the route of the Arab media in the other Arab countries. We want proper pluralistic democratic media and they were trying to organize that and so thanks to Annabelle Strabani who's also been on the podcast really yeah because I was at a conference with her that was like it was really weird that she was there and because it was more about like the economics of the West Bank and Gaza right she works primarily on Iran yes and and but also she's in media this was nothing to do with media this conference right this is about economics right Um, a rerun of something that, going back to Mead, in the days at Mead, we'd had a study on the you know, economic viability of a Palestinian state in West Bank and Gaza back in 74, and by Rodney Wilson. Um, anyway, so I went to this conference, and I, I spoke to her, I said, Annabelle, I'm probably the only person here who's read your stuff, because I mean, you know, they weren't her kind of people. And I was talking about my planned dissertation topic with something to do with investigative journalism, and my mom, and she said, Sake, don't do that. <laughs> Look, do this. 
And she was so right. Work and on I the did. Arab world. Work on well, work on like past, you know, because not that anybody, not that we, any, either she or I, were convinced by the Oslo Accords or any of that. Mm. But just that sudden there was a, like a rupture, there was a change in the, it was, like, it was sort of game changing. This is the moment uh, for yeah, those who weren't around course, in the yes. mid 90s. Uh, 93, yeah. 93, and Clinton had just become president and he tries to take credit for it. But it was the Norwegians it actually was, that, that, that it, engineered it. It was the Norwegians yeah. that did it, but basically it manages to bring together uh, uh, Fatah at least. With with with, the with, Israel, with with yeah with the aim to have because there have been multilateral talks and actually it, it kind of hijacked the multilateral talks that had been set in motion in Madrid in Madrid I think it was in 1991 there was multilateral Israeli Palestinian talks going on on all fronts on water on right. um, <clears throat> um, and <clears throat> the Oslo Accords kind of like pulled the rug from under those yeah. and like turned it around another way um, but anyway that was they it, it gave me the opportunity to look at what okay what are the media structures in Palestine at the moment how will they change if there are because part of the deal was that there would be frequencies the Israelis would cede frequencies to Palestinians and um, and they would have observer status in the ITU and things like that International so, Telecommunications, Telecommunications Union, Union which is S. Telecommunication Union, sorry, which <laughs> is one of the governing bodies that deals with yeah. these spectrum allocation questions, which in a sense don't matter as much as they used to, but, no, but that, are still is, yeah. quite relevant, yeah. i.e. who has what bit on a band of yeah, well, radio actually, or television. Uh, you say it doesn't matter as much, but like with, 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 with mobile telephony and, and yeah. that, I mean, and, and military requirements. Yeah, yeah, no, it's still, it's still are, there. Yeah. It's just not as... It's not. Uh, it's Quite not. As it doesn't make headlines. Yeah, it doesn't make headlines in a way. That but actually, probably more of us should be looking at it. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Anyway. Um. So yeah. So um. And and I came up with actually plus that short, plus that short. You know. Mm -hmm. That what had happened in South Africa, which was that you had um, like changes of name, but the same personnel. That's more or less what was happening in, um, you know, the, the people with the resources and mm. the people who've, like, been there for a while, who've got the roots, adjust to the new situation and you don't get anything, like, radically different. Yeah. Wow. So. But, I mean, I'm probably doing, not doing justice to my own conclusion because that's a while ago. We're talking 20 years ago now. Direct. I guess I become familiar with your work. It must be the late '90s, or maybe it's the early 2000s, when you have, from memory, I mean, you'll correct me if I've got this wrong. Like the proper name of the ITU, two or three books come out on satellite issues yeah. in the Arab world. Yeah. Yeah, I wrote well because my book uh, came. Well, it's got the copyright date in it. It's 2001. It actually came out February 2002. Um, and what's this one called? And this is Satellite Realms, Transnational Television Globalization in the Middle East. Now, that's my first book. I mean, I did have articles before that, journal articles, including in Gazette. Gazette is a very good publication it, from SAGE. Yeah, now called International Communication Gazette, but in those days it was just Gazette. Um, and like every anything international, if you wanted international stuff on communication, that's where you look, basically, in those days. 
And it was truly cosmopolitan. It wasn't just the Anglo world yeah. that published there. Yeah, yeah, it's true. That's true. Um, um, yeah, so, so the book came out. Um, um, but the reason it was able to come out at that stage... Okay, so Al Jazeera, everybody suddenly gets fixated on Al Jazeera. Mm -hmm. Al Jazeera started in 96, but it didn't really get into consciousness of you know, the wider world until 98 when they changed their band, like they were on, they were on Q band and they changed to C band, which made, meant more people could receive them. So 98, and plus there's Desert Fox uh, operations that are happening in Iraq, I guess, and um, Al Jazeera is covering them, so providing like, information to Arab audiences that they're mm. not getting from elsewhere. Um, and then, of course, 9-11 um, um, from 2001, mm. Al Jazeera makes its name because it's in uh, two places in Afghanistan, it's in Kabul and Kandahar, and they can report where CNN had the opportunity and they, didn't, they got out. So Al Jazeera's brand suddenly, you know, is all the rage in 2001, but it, my book was not instant punditry. Because my book, which is partly my PhD, but other stuff as well, that I was doing like consultancy work for Article 19 and so on. That's <coughs> how, how I've been like equipped to, to write this. My book was um, the impetus, or was um, uh, Egypt having its own satellite. This is Nilesat. Nilesat, yes, yeah. which um, dates back to like mid-70s. Now, um, I became aware, like, so 1995 they commissioned it, 1998 it was launched. <coughs> but from 1995 onwards, that, that was really, I mean, that's when I started my PhD, and it was the, the whole question of, of satellite communications and, and sovereignty. Um, that, was, that was the focus of what I was interested right. in. Right. No, it's a fascinating So the book, so as it were, so I'd been researching the book for six years before it came out. Came out. Yeah. So it comes out, it says 2001, but it's really yeah. 2002. We've only got about five minutes left, and I'd love to run through some of your other publications really quickly, just so people can easily find them. So what happens after that? Um, Where can people go on the web or in a bookstore if such a thing exists? Okay, so I've got three, so apart from Satellite Realms, there's two books, single author books. An amazingly productive person. And two, and two, and two edited, and coming to be three edited. And it, okay, so the two single author books. One is Arab Television Today, which is two thousand and seven, which is not kind of son of Satellite Realms or daughter <laughs> of Satellite Realms. It's um, a kind of different take on because there, there's a huge like change that happened in Arab TV between my first book and. Um, 2007. So that, our television today, and then the more recent one is Transformation in, Transformations in Egyptian Journalism, um, which came out in 2000, well, I wrote it in 2012. Um, the aim being, be, being to say that everybody like thinks history starts at the moment of the Arab uprisings, mm. but actually, kind of, let's look at what was happening to journalism like the decade before, and that's where I sort of come into that book. And it's, oh, that's the book I don't know. 
So that's uh, it's it's uh, it's Taurus again, but with Reuters Institute for Study of Journalism. So this is IB Taurus, the publisher, and the Reuters Institute for Study of Journalism is at. It's in Oxford, yeah, mm. yeah, mm. and they commissioned it. Oh, wonderful! And it's kind of it's a short book. It's like um, I mean that's the reason I took it on, and it's quite sort of single focus. Right. right. Um, and then the two edited books. One is um, what I call the women book. <laughs> We've all got to have one, dear. <laughs> Nobody, it was the first, and it, I mean, it, 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 um, I mean, they, it got reprinted a couple of times, I think. Right, right. So, it, clearly, people wanted it in some way. So, it's an edited collection of people writing about um, issues around, like, women's self-expression in, in the Middle East. Mm. So, uh, women filmmakers, women's use of the internet, mm. this kind of mm. stuff. Women, women uh, war reporters, um, there's... Um, and then the second book, uh, edited book, came out of a series that we did in Camry, which I, the acronym we've already mentioned. Yeah. Um, our, um, the predecessor of the Arab Media Centre was two years worth of ESRC, Economic and Social Research Council funded seminars, which we gathered, to, the work that came out of it, we gathered in a book called Arab Media and Political News. And it was quite prescient, actually, because there was a lot of stuff in there about kind of uprising, sort of like um, uh, <clears throat> political contention and dissent and, and yeah. so on. And that came out in 2007. Uh, I can't end this conversation without asking you a couple of questions, which, of course, are huge, not little. The first one is to ask you about your take on the... Cybertarian technological determinism that we got a lot of in the Anglo world explaining the so-called Arab Spring as the consequence of Twitter, Facebook, so-called social media. Okay, then quick heart says, read my article in television and new media. Ah, a fine journal. <laughs> Which is called Social Media, Television Talk Shows and Political Change in Egypt. Um, where I use various sort of theories around like hybridization and, and you know Chadwick's take on hybridity of, uh, of news sources. <clears throat> um, but to, to say that it's not you know it's it, again it was a it was a gradual process of coming together of different media that um, helped a kind of political awareness raising and political mobilisation. So, you know, that process had been going on long before. So Facebook was part of it, but it has started. I mean, you've got to have the stuff on the ground and you've got to have the, the reasons. And the part of the conclusion of that article is that, um, um, is that it's kind of <clears throat> events at the end of the day. As uh, Harold Macmillan would have said, <laughs> events, dear events, dear boy. <laughs> And finally, on a, on a much less light note even, uh, right now we're in the middle of a horrendous moment in history, although it's got a long lineage, which is the invasion of Gaza. And uh, no doubt the fatalities will be in the thousands by the end of the weekend, the end of next week, if things continue as they are. Thousands? More than a thousand, but yeah, maybe well, not thousands. We hope not. Well, I meant at yeah. the thousand, because we're at... I think 700 already. Uh, my sense, without having done content analysis, having spent most of the last 20 years in the US, is that 
United States bourgeois media have actually turned a corner on a lot of this and are prepared at least to listen to alternative voices. When I was in Waitrose this morning looking at the newsstand, I saw a dozen British newspapers. The only one that had this on the front page was the Grawniad, the Guardian. Not the Tory Graph, not the Times, and none of the tabloids. What's going on? Oh my God, I can't speak for British media. I really, I really can't speak. I mean, <clears throat> I suppose MH17 is going on, and and Ukraine, and um, and so the, there's there, there are lots of questions in one there. Why is the Guardian, why is the Guardian different from the others? Um, and why would the British press have different priorities on their front page? I mean, is it to do with issues of what you can actually show in pictures? Because, I mean, this is one of the topics that Steve Hewlett, you know, talks about in his media shows. Like, so that was a discussion this week is, you know, what can you actually show on TV news at tea time as opposed to 10 o'clock news? This is a Steve Hewlett, a former Maoist <coughs> who runs the BBC's Radio 4 media programme, which is available as a podcast. And you'd never know he was once a Maoist. But it was about that, I mean, so, but the, the answer to the question of why would one paper have it on the front page and others not, I mean, I do believe that the, I don't believe in conspiracy. I do believe it's probably, there might be different reasons for each particular publication, mm -hmm. that contingency, you know, Michael Schusson is very good on these, you know, we need to think, we need to unpack it all and think of the different levels and layers at which this happens. I don't like to think of it in terms of conspiracy because I don't think it's helpful. And I think, and I think the public mindset um, obviously is influenced by who gets to speak the most, mm. and who gets to speak the most is who articulates their position in the you know in the most as it were in the way that is most palatable to Western media consumers. And um, so, what else to say? That's a great answer as we see the latest chapter unfurl in another human tragedy. Yeah, and it's been an incredible privilege, Naomi, to oh, learn so much you. from you today. <clears throat> I really appreciate it. I, I just feel I've spoken too much about myself. That is what it's meant to be really? about. Okay. It's not events, dear <laughs> Anyway, thanks again. Thank and as you. I said, I, I'm really hopeful that you and your collaborators, your team, will come into the pod maybe all together might be oh, fun we could do a couple of sessions yes. even to talk great? about your findings absolutely get to get Tarek on the stream to do that would be yeah. wonderful yeah, great absolutely. okay thanks. many thanks, thanks.